Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Josh Gondelman is a stand-up comic and a writer. And he's also really nice. Like, if you say his name to somebody in comedy, if you go up to somebody and say, hey, what do you think of Josh Gondelman? They're going to say, oh, Josh Gondelman, he's so nice. Josh takes the stage. He says that he's like, if a cardigan were a person. But Josh Gondelman isn't just nice. He's also incisive. He's a brilliant writer. He's won two Peabody's and three Emmys for writing on John Oliver's show last week tonight. These days, he writes for Showtime's Desus and Mara. He also has a new book out. It's about learning to be nice and how to not let the nice be the enemy of the good. It's called Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. Before we get into the interview, let's play a bit of his stand-up. This is from his most recent album, Dancing on a Weeknight, which came out earlier this year. There's a confidence in a 94-year-old who's doing well that you're not going to see anywhere else in humanity, right? My great-aunt walks around all day like she just won an Oscar on top of Mount Everest. (laughs) Just unbeatable swagger, oxygen tank. (laughs) The confidence comes out in weird ways. We took her out to lunch. At the end of the meal, the waiter comes over. He says, would you like some dessert? We have one dessert special today. It's a slice of pumpkin pie. My great aunt looks him in the eyes and goes, we'll have some grapes for the table. (laughs) He goes, grapes? She goes, for the table. The waiter walks out of the room, presumably to quit, is what I thought was happening. I'm going back to law school, like my dad keeps saying. Comes back two minutes later, three bowls of grapes for the table. There weren't even grapes on the menu at this restaurant. Josh Gondelman, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here. Josh, are you a nice man? I try. What does that mean? I try to be courteous and helpful and uh, and pleasant and, and not a monster. Is that something that you aspire to or identify as? Great question. I think it's both. I definitely aspire to being being a good person and being a kind person, but I think I also identify like I'm a person who has an interest in being that, and so I also identify as that. I think there are people who don't identify as nice. They're like, no, I I'm not nice because I tell it like it is or whatever. And I think I'm like, oh, no, I'm pretty gentle. Wouldn't you say your job as a comedian is to be a ruthless truth teller? <laughs> I would say I'm a truth teller with some Ruth. (laughs) And what if Ruth's in the room? You're not going to tell any unnecessarily harsh truths about her. No. What's funny about this is that I have a great aunt named Ruth who is not the one that that joke is about. But this is just making me think about just talking trash about my great aunt Ruth in front of her. Um, At what point in your life did you realize there might be a difference between being a nice person and being a good person? I think it's gotten like demonstrably vaster over the last few years. It's all it's been there for I think most of my adult life, but coming up on like 2015, 2016, the election to present, it like the divide amongst like people who are kind of like polite but 
unkind and and like ungenerous and the people who are like actually you know actually doing work to make people's lives better became more obvious to me and, and maybe it's you know maybe I came late to the game on that I'm I'm sure I did but like it the the chasm seemed to like split open a little wider around then what do you think is the difference I think nice is like polite easy to get along with and kind is like doing things that might be uncomfortable for the sake of goodness and generosity that that's kind of how I define it in my mind what was the first time you did comedy I did a friend of mine had a coffee house that at like a local rec center and I did a bit I was maybe 17 or 18 it was either between it must have been 18 it was like right after uh, senior year of high school and I remember having this bit that I would do with friends that I think everyone was probably tired of about movie theaters that I'm sure like Seinfeld has done a better version of this same idea it's like such a picky little like Seinfeldian observation uh, but my joke was bad uh, just about how I was I went to a movie theater with two sizes uh, of um, soda and one was medium and one was large and I said you can't have a medium without the small and the large to compare it to. And that was basically end of joke. <laughs> it was just a just a cranky observation. It was kind of an Annie, Andy Rooney type thought. Did you do a lot of gesticulating toward the camera? <laughs> yeah, I looked right at the camera that I imagined to be there. You lifted up the cups and said, ah! <laughs> Back in my day, there was one size. It was called soda. We both have a really good Andy Rooney impression, by the way. I don't We're know really if you good, yeah. That. We're both kind of gifted mimics. We're real James Adomians over here. I think we should go on the road as dueling Roonies. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you want to do comedy? Comedy is not necessarily a nice man's game. No, that's true. I was, uh, a man was a generous term for 18-year-old me as well. I'd, I'd done theater throughout most of high school, and I always played the kind of funny parts. And, and I really liked that. I felt like I had an aptitude for it, and I would write things for, like, school variety shows. And I really liked doing it. I liked writing funny things. I liked, um performing them and it, I felt like an extension of that it felt like a way to bring that that kind of extracurricular fun like into the world so I did that and then I didn't do stand-up again for like probably a year it was just I had this opportunity and then I didn't really seek it out for another year or so but it I really I liked having an outlet for that and in college I started I was doing improv uh, freshman year and it just didn't quite scratch the itch in the same way because I wasn't good at it. <laughs> I wasn't good at improv and I wasn't like I felt one of the things I like about stand up is that you can have an idea, you can script it fully or or you know take as much as you want of it to an audience, tell it to them and then know immediately whether it feels good or bad to do. And with improv, you don't get to like recalibrate the same way you do it. And if it's good, then it's good. And then it's gone forever. And if it's bad, then it's bad and it's gone forever. And you never get to be like, oh, what if I did this? And so I I tried, I started doing standup, which I, I was better at it because I could exercise some kind of like control as opposed to letting go and trusting other people. Are there other parts of your life where you have had to work on wanting to control everything? Yeah, I think so. It used to be, I can't remember the, the like a specific time, but I would remember like 
if I made a plan with someone, if I was like, we're going to go to this restaurant at this time, I would be very much looking forward to it. And then the restaurant would be full or whatever. And I would feel like I let the other person down, even though they had no stake in eating at that particular restaurant or what, you know, stories like that. Or And I would feel I would be very like apologetic and very anxious about not delivering the promised experience. And I think I've gotten better with time at, <laughs> at trusting like if I'm like, hey, there are these great quesadillas you'll like. And then uh, the restaurant is closed that day that my friend isn't going to be like, well, uh, you didn't deliver on the quesadillas and we are finished. Josh, uh, my parents divorced when I was three and were in legal conflict until I was in my mid-teens. So why are you like this? (laughs) I do not know. I have, I can't trace it. My my parents stayed together through my childhood and remained together and are large, seem like they're very happy and contented people. Um, I don't know if it's just Judaism. I truly don't know. And I'm like, I feel fairly well adjusted, but I also think there are like ways I'm always trying to like do better and let go a little more or or, um, collaborate a little better. It's weird because I really love people and working with people and being friends. But I also like I am a person who because of work, because I like kind of take on too much work a lot of the time, I'll like miss a lot of social obligations for stand up or for, you know, for writing jobs. And, And so like. I feel like I'm a I'm an incredibly extroverted person who's also a lone wolf at times, and I don't know how to reconcile that. Uh, you're speaking to my heart, Josh. <laughs> speaking to my heart. Um, I'm going to get into Howard Stern territory for a second. Please. How old were you when you first had sex? And you're a straight guy, so I'm gonna I'm gonna characterize sex as uh, gentleman part into lady part, middle of the body. Sure, 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 sure. And right, and then we're talking like cisgendered, gentleman part, cisgendered, lady part for the sake of... This is in this specific case, yeah. yeah this is in this specific sure. case. Um, I Yes, I was, about to, I was about to qualify too, but I was 22, which was like, I don't mean to brag, but like it had, had been on the table earlier and I was just like, well, you're supposed to wait till you know it's the right person. And then I, uh, since then, have been like, you know, there's, what's right? (laughs) Who can say? (laughs) I mean, it's not an act that will ever really go right the first few times around. (laughs) For sure. And, like, the longer you wait, the more of a head start you're giving other people on, like, knowing what they want and what how to do things that you might enjoy. And so, it, like, it wasn't like I was doing – I wasn't, like, abstaining from all physical touch uh, until that point. But it was, like – I think by the time I started, like, engaging in, like, fully adult sexuality, I was like, mm-hmm, sure, maybe I uh, could have – learned a little something before I got to this point. Were you in situations where you declined? Yeah, I think there there were like there was at least one situation where I like specifically declined and then a couple situations where like I think both parties kind of like lacked the vocabulary to get to the point where 
someone would have to be like, oh, no, thank you. Not for me. Um, but yeah, it was like I definitely had declined. Do you remember what was going through your head at the time? Yeah, I think I was. How, it, how old were you, for one thing? Probably like 18. What was the situation? It was somebody somebody that I'd been dating. And I, I think in this particular instance, I remembered thinking like, you know, I, I don't know if I want to be in this relationship. And I don't want to like take another step of not commitment, but to like to make the relationship more serious and more um, intense than it is now. Do you think you were right to think that? I do in that instance. I think I was I was right. But also, like, I would have been right to not think that, if that makes sense. Can you give me an example of a time in your life when you were not nice, when you think it was the, the right way to behave? Yeah. I mean, I talk about it in the book. This is, like, such a low-impact example, but... I made a vow to myself. My New Year's resolution like four years ago was to stop apologizing when other people bump into me. And you live in New York City. I live in New York City. And I was apologizing a lot. (laughs) And I was coming out of the train and a guy bumped into me on the way in, which you always wait for people to get out of the train before you get onto it because it will not leave until everyone is off it and then you're on it. And that's the order of things. We live in a society. And... (laughs) There are rules. There are rules. And attention must be paid. I'm just like full Willy Loman. Um, so I, I was walking onto the train. The guy bumped me, not hard enough to like hurt, but hard enough to be like, you're doing the wrong thing. And I said, I'm sorry. And then as the doors closed, I yelled, no, I'm not sorry. <laughs> and uh, it's like that kind of stuff, just like the idea of doing that i'm trying to think i also i'll get a little snotty online too and i and i think i think that's part of it is like a thing that is not nice that is good is like saying when things and people are bull and i think that that that's like something i'm really working on doing better is not like letting stuff slide that i'm like oh that's a messed up way to be or that's like an uncool thing to say and i'm like little by little expanding my comfort zone of being able to be like, you know, it's easier to let this go. But if I say, hey, that's not cool, that's like a harmful, that's inaccurate and harmful, I'm striving towards more of that. What's an example of that? Um, I don't know if this this works. The most most recent example that comes to mind is when when David Koch uh, passed away. I had tweeted something like, David Koch has passed away. In lieu of flowers, please develop a shadow network of shell companies that are technically nonprofits and enable donations to influence the future of American politics and uh, deregulate and destroy the environment. Something like that. And that's, you know, that's fine. That's like a, a joke. And uh, people would say, there were a bunch of people, I think it got blogged on Fox News. And so a bunch of uh, people who disagree with me were would say things like, hey, that, you know, someone died. And I would say Did to they them... tweet at you in that voice? Yeah, I think they all had that voice. Men, women, <laughs> children. <laughs> right. Um, I just... I Look, I'm proud of myself for not doing a stereotypical Southern accent. <laughs> so, and, and my response to that was... I, at, I was more patient at first, and it happened a lot of times, and my wife eventually had to be like, why are you still responding to these people? And I had to 
pull myself away a little bit. But my response was, look, when you do a bad thing when you're alive, it doesn't go away when you're dead. And like, it's still worth commenting upon. And they would go, uh, he has a family. And I would go, well, are you going to show him the tweet? <laughs> We've got even more with Josh Gondelman. Don't go anywhere. After the break, he's known for giving people pep talks on Twitter. And I will have him give one to you, my dear, sweet NPR listener. Back in a minute, it's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Maddie Sofia here, host of NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave. This week, don't miss a special batch of Halloween episodes, including one on the terrifying intelligence of crows. Listen and subscribe to Shortwave from NPR. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases. I ask them questions. They're good ones. And then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling, my dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a floby, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Josh Gondelman. He's a writer for Desus and Marrow on Showtime. Before that, he earned three Emmys and two Peabody's for writing for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He's also a great stand-up comic with a handful of albums to his name, and he has a book. It's called Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. It's in bookstores now. I just saw an amazing set that uh, Nikki Glaser did on a Comedy Central roast. Oh, yeah. Very funny stand-up comic. And I found myself wondering, Josh, you've written a lot of jokes for television. Yeah. What would you do if you were asked to write roast jokes? Or have you ever written roast jokes? I've I've done a little. I'm not great at it. I, Even with d- your famous killer instinct? <laughs> <laughs> I do. When I get on stage, I just see that Mortal Kombat finish him come up. <laughs> but I like, I love writing jokes. And so like, on one level, a roast really appeals to me, but I prefer it to be with people that I have a little better personal knowledge of because otherwise it's just like, look at this person who's an older woman. You know what I mean? Or like, look at this person who is uh, overweight. And and like, I think that doesn't really appeal to me as much of just like doing that surface level stuff. I did write, I think I can, I think I can say this. I did send Nikki for a previous roast a joke that I think made it into the roast and maybe maybe it was even in the promo, which was it was for the roast of Rob Lowe. And I wrote the joke was as a little girl, I had such a, a crush on Rob Lowe or as a teenage girl, I had such a crush on Rob Lowe. And then when I grew up, I realized uh, I'd missed my shot. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a very dark joke, but it's not. But the the target of the joke is like. I find rightfully mean, if that makes sense. It's not like, 
look at this woman. She's gay. Isn't that hilarious? It's like this guy did this thing and we let it slide and I'm going to bring it up because it's uncomfortable and true. Do you ever think of jokes and you think that is a funny joke, but it is not something that I would want to do on stage? Yeah, for sure. It doesn't happen that much. I feel like I've refined my voice enough that like I mostly think things that are my thoughts and make them comedic as opposed to like grasping at, oh, I could write a joke about this or this is a funny thing to say. Um, so I'm trying, I'm, I try to do more of that and that helps a lot. But there are definitely things where I'll have an idea and I have to make sure like, oh, this part is funny, but I want to make sure I'm uh, not throwing people under the bus in a way that is not what I'm intending. Like I said recently, you know, I I think it's okay to hurt someone's feelings with a joke as long as you're trying to hurt their feelings with that joke. <laughs> and what I'm trying to avoid doing is like hurting people's feelings for the sake of a joke that is not intended to do that. My experience is that comics are generally pretty generous with each other, particularly because they they know how hard it is to be a comic. They know mm-hmm. how hard it is to make someone laugh. And they also, you know, I think you don't become a comedian without a a relatively thick skin and also a an immense respect for someone who can make a good joke uh whether or not the good joke has the target that you would yourself would choose or the uh, content that you yourself would choose like there's a kind of fundamental respect for that i also kind of want to stipulate that like the stuff that's going around about you know there being a comedy civil war sure is not reflective of what comics, the way that comics that I know generally talk about each other. Mm-hmm. But as a guy who thinks of yourself as nice and obviously prioritizes that in your life, prioritizes taking care of other people, do you see comedy that upsets you? That's a, that's a very good question. I definitely see comedy that I don't like. And... It's tough. I think in addition to the um, the other things that you said and in, in reasons that com- uh, comedians are generous with one another, right? I think it's also there's the fact that like we are coworkers, right? And there's no like real HR, so it's tough. I think that there's like a letting things slide or like a self selecting into or out of certain communities that um that happens and that I know you know that I'm a, that I'm a part of like I think every joke that I'm like man that joke bums me out cuz I it seems like it's it's mean spirited or like hurtful I don't feel comfortable every time I see that being le- like putting somebody on blast and, but it's like there are like places where I do and don't work or um you know about the stand up and like other parts of the industry just because I'm like you know, I don't feel comfortable being in, you know, even implicitly like endorsing a lot of the stuff that happens here, even if I'm not going to go out on a limb and be like, I think this person or this joke uh, is like not good. Does that make sense? I'm a little rambly. No, that, that does make sense. When you're working essentially as 
always an independent contractor on a day-to-day basis. You know, you're you're going and doing 10 minutes for, you know, in a good room, maybe a couple hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And you're hitting the road and making a few thousand. How do you decide where to draw the line about what spaces you do and don't want to be in when it's also your job and you you have a, you know, you're married. Yeah. <laughs> you, you live in New York. Right. I, I, I get to pick and choose a little bit more because I'm in writer's room so much and that like so much of my income comes from that. That's like, I mean, I think that's the easiest way to get to go. Oh, you know what? Like, I don't really feel comfortable doing this show or whatever, just because like, I'm not super into the general vibe of it. And I, I have that liberty, I think. And it's not even that I begrudge other people for doing it. It's just like, oh, this isn't super comfortable for me. So it's not something that I'm going to pursue. And having that like a little more flexibility is helpful. It's also like one, I mean, truly like one of the things that I think about, like one of the criteria, it's not like, do I think these, this person is a bad person? Do I, do I think their act is bad? I will avoid everyone who's like comedy isn't for my sensibilities because there's like plenty of very good stuff that is like not for me. But it's like, if someone came to see me and they watch this show, would they feel like happy and enjoy it and feel like, you know, safe or would they feel uh, like, oh, this was like kind of a hostile environment to me. So that's something I like try to think about. Do you think PC culture has gone too far? <laughs> Let's get into it. No, um, I don't know. I think I, I will say the the thing I think about this very sincerely with, you know, without, I trying, without trying to be buzzwordy about things is I think it's important that comics are mindful of the things they're saying and like consider what they're saying and the impact that it has on people. And there are comedians who push the envelope in ways that they that is maybe controversial or confrontational and are like fully accepting that like that's that people are going to be turned off and then I think there are t- times people go well I should be able to say things that are upsetting and then reap the full benefits of everyone liking me which feels <laughs> um counterintuitive but I think I think it's good to like think about what you're doing and what what you're saying because again it's like you're talking to a lot of people and 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 it's like a it is kind of a big responsibility the culture shift that i see and i'm running a a half-baked theory past you Mm -hmm. here josh but the culture shift that i see is that i feel like there are a lot of comics including great comics who came into comedy being told that audience response represents the ultimate judgment, ultimate truth, and ultimate good. For those comics, part and for many comics, including others, like one of the big appeals of comedy is if the audience laughs, you're doing good. If the audience doesn't doesn't laugh, you need to change something. You find out right away and you can do something different or do something the same on that basis. And I feel like when comics are complaining about people being upset that they're doing a joke that upsets people and some people walk out or whatever, often what those comics are complaining about is that they feel like they can no longer trust that value system that they put a lot of energy into. I do, I do think, and this is like no 
particular shade at any particular person or, you know, I'm not looking askance at anyone specific. But I do think when people make the complaint that audience and there are times where I am in front of audiences where I'm like, come on, grow up. Like, that's truly, that's a feeling that I have. And I wouldn't necessarily, like, put it on them. You know, if you, like, I think Jerry Seinfeld has famously talked about not liking the sensibility of college crowds, right? And I have myself been in front of college crowds and not found them too PC. Uh, That's, like, not a, a rubric that I really think about. But I have been in front of college crowds and been like, oh, their life experience is such that they don't relate to this kind of like dark thing that I'm saying or this kind of like grown up thing that I'm saying. And and they're, they have maybe a, a more a, a delicate sensibility around certain things. And it's like that's their prerogative. And like ultimately, if when you complaining about audiences in general being too sensitive is like you're kind of telling on yourself for just bombing a lot because like when an audience is sensitive and doesn't like what you're doing that is what bombing is it's the same as like if i went into a room and people are like you're not talking enough about how you hate your wife and she's dumb right and and i'm bombing that's it's bombing and so like i do think if you're going to say that audience laughter is the ultimate arbiter which i don't think it is you also have to acknowledge that like when you are in front of different audiences and they are not laughing that it's not that they aren't on the same page with like the one true comedy it's that you're eating (laughs) i think there's a secondary thing too which is that if you presume that the audience's laughter equals success purely without Mm -hmm. exception you Put yourself in a position where for many crowds that you perform to, there may be very different kinds of responses within the crowd. And if 90% of the audience is laughing, you are doing very well by the rubric. If the audience laughs, you're doing well, no matter what is going on with the remaining 10%. And I think that for me, the point that drove home that that was a fallacious way of thinking of the world was jokes about rape and sexual assault. So in my mind, when I was maybe in my 20s, I thought, look, jokes have a target. If the joke is has a clear target and the clear target is not the victim, it's okay to do a joke about this. Like if I'm not picking on someone, if I'm not punching down... It's okay to do a joke about that. If it's a good joke, whatever. And that was obviously coming from a place of immense privilege that I've never in my life had to be concerned about sexual assault for myself. And then someone very nicely (laughs) explained to me that given the proportion of people who are uh, victims of sexual assault, any room that I'm performing for or audience for whom I'm performing, there are people in that audience who have been victims of sexual assault. And the impact on them is extraordinary if if someone makes light of it, even if the target is not mm-hmm. victims, even if the target is perpetrators or it's completely abstract or it's about, you know, it could be about a horrific dictator or something. That's the target of the joke. But just including it in there really could hurt people. And that's something that I feel like some of those older comics want to cop out of entirely. Something that I see where they're like, well, I got most of the people there to laugh at me. And I understand, like I said, I understand the impulse. 
because I, I'm, you know, I'm a nice enough guy, but like I, I constructed systems to describe why I wasn't punching down if I said something about that. But it's something that I see sensitivity to in many younger comics and sometimes the absence of sensitivity to in older comics, both in this specific case and and more generally. Yeah, I think, again, it just, to me, it comes back to being mindful of what you're saying and the kind of impact it has on people. And it's like, it doesn't mean, like, agreed, fully agreed that, like, when 90% of the audience is laughing and you're a comedian and your job is to make people laugh, right, and it feels like you're doing almost as good a job of your job as possible, it's hard to hear like the 10% of people in this room, you know, we're just going with this 90-10 split, the 10%, their feelings supersede or could supersede the the uh, response of the other 90%. So I, I fully understand the idea of like having to craft an hour of material or a career full of hours of material that, that appeal to 100% of the people in any given room is thorny and like maybe not possible but i think like again having that mindfulness of like what am i saying who am i saying it to and like what impact is it having on people it's like a a very reasonable but difficult responsibility to undertake but like the responsibilities that you're like not undertaking when you do that for a job is like getting up at 8 a.m and uh you know what i mean like you're doing These are a different set of responsibilities than people who work in other kinds of jobs may have to think about. Do you feel like uh, your career as a comedian is good? Do you feel good about your choice of having gone into that field of work? Not as good as like if I had stayed as an educator, probably. But I've gotten to work on a bunch of things that I feel really proud of from Last Week's Night with John Oliver to Jesus and Marrow. And I try to do stand-up that I feel like is increasingly a source of joy and comfort to people and like diminishingly kind of just like a collection of words to get people to laugh so I feel good about me. <laughs> and I'm I'm not like a big believer in like, you know, comedy. It's the most important thing in the world because people need to laugh. But I am like, well, I'm not an arms manufacturer, <laughs> so there's a spectrum. <laughs> And I try to be good outside of work as well. I think like living a whole human life uh, is more important or it's, 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 you can live a whole human life that includes what you do for a living that isn't fully defined by it. You will occasionally offer pep talks on Twitter. Uh, you'll take a 10 minute window of your life and offer to say some encouraging words. And I've seen you say encouraging words both to total strangers and to friends and colleagues in that context. We have some people listening on national public radio at the moment. I wonder if you have it in your heart to offer them uh, one of your signature pep talks. Absolutely. I'm trying to think of the broadest one that is still meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm talking to a bunch of disparate listeners. Um, I, I think something that I find to be, it sounds platitude ish, but it's also true and helpful to hear articulated sometimes maybe is that lots of things are bad. Uh, That's not the peppy part. 
is that lots of things are bad, but like there are people working to make them better and you can be one of those people and there's like love and support for you even when it feels like there might not be. Well, Josh Gondelman, I sure enjoyed your book, Nice Try, and I'm such a fan of yours and uh, proud to be your pal. So thank you. Thank you very much for coming on Bullseye. Thank you for having me. Josh Gondelman, everyone. One of the funniest guys out there. His book is called Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. It's out now. He also put out a great stand-up album this year called Dancing on a Weeknight. For his day job, Josh writes on Desus and Marrow on Showtime which airs Mondays and Thursday nights at 11. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week was spotted a turtle riding a sofa cushion around the lake. Nature in Her Majesty. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And we've got all kinds of past episodes of Bullseye that you should go check out, not just in your podcast app, although your podcast app is a great place to look, but also uh, on our website, on Facebook, on YouTube. One example, Josh Gondelman, who has appeared in several of our end-of-the-year best stand-up comedy specials. You can check those out uh, in any of those places. Josh is hilarious. You can also find Bullseye on social media. We're at Bullseye on Twitter. You should follow us there. Uh, we're at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We'll probably be on TikTok soon. I'm working on my clown transformations. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 